You all can be seated. You can open up your copy of the Bible, if you have one, uh, to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, that's where we're going to be here in just a moment, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we normally go through books of the Bible, just sequentially start at the beginning and go all the way through the end. A few weeks from now, we're even going to start through the book of Deuteronomy uh, and looking forward to that. But we're taking seven weeks as we enter into a school year, kind of reorient our lives privately and even collectively as a society and as a church. We're taking seven weeks uh, as a church to go through a series of sermons that we're just calling very simply values that as we think about our life together as a community of believers, as a church family, we're trying to think of what are seven biblical values that we want to mark every dimension of our life together, whether it's what happens in here on Sunday mornings, whether it's what happens in our life groups, in our homes, uh, in classrooms, in gatherings, uh, even in informal conversations that we have. What are seven things that we want to give particular attention to and see just laced through the entirety of the life of our church? And the first two Sundays, we talked about grace and truth. Those are the first two. Uh, the first one was grace. How we, as recipients of grace, want to be extenders of grace to each other. And last week's was about truth and the importance of having the truth of God's word be the foundation and be the content of every relationship that we have, every interaction that we have as God's people. We want it to be laced through. Today we come to the value that is prevalent throughout all of scripture, but especially dense in the book of 1 John, the value of love. And uh, before we enter into this text, I want to share a quote that I was reminded of this week. Uh, it's from Francis Schaeffer. He was an apologist, uh, uh, a, a big figure in the second half of last century amongst Christianity worldwide. Uh, but he wrote this, and it's kind of a long quote. I hope you can see this up there. If not, you can just uh, listen along. But I want you to hear something that he said in a book that he wrote called The Church Before the Watching World. That was the name of the book, The Church Before the Watching World. And he wrote this. One cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. Uh, I, I share that with you because I think it's instructive to us, even coming off of last Sunday where we celebrated rightfully the value of truth and the role of truth amongst God's people. That must be present in the life of our church until Jesus comes back, that we are driven by truth. We have truth of Scripture laced through everything that we do, but we never want to give in to the temptation to, to emphasize truth at the detriment of love or in a, with a lack of love, where we know all the right answers, we teach all the right things, we have all the right doctrines, we can tack off, or check off all the boxes doctrinally, and then we have no love for each other. But the truth that we know from God's word, which we're going to see today, is to do something in us. Not just to teach us something, but to change the way that we live. To change the way that we live as individuals and as a collective community. Truth is supposed to foster love. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong. There's something that we're living that's not biblical Christianity. And so he was talking about the importance of orthodoxy of doctrine, 
but orthodoxy of community as well, that we need to have love that is pervasive in every dimension of our life together as a church. And so we're going to read together this morning to, to see this fleshed out from 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12. It's always kind of tricky if you know much about John. He kind of writes in different ways where it's just kind of ebb and flow and he, he'll say one thing and then another and then kind of come back around to the thing he said before. So sometimes it's hard to know where to start and stop. So I pick verses 7 through 12 of this chapter, but there's stuff I may refer to after it or before it as well. Um, but I want to read especially chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And here John, the Apostle John's uh, heartbeat of love and his call for Christians to love each other. Before I read this, I would note just the verse before this, verse 6 of that chapter, even the very sentence right before this, John does not emphasize love to the lack or the detriment of truth. He, he just said, right before we're about to read, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It, truth is huge for John. Uh, he, he knows that the church, Christians need to know the truth, believe the truth, hear the truth again and again and again. Uh, so, but then he turns a corner in what we're going to read today and talks about love. He's already mentioned a few times in this letter. He'll mention it again. But here in this section, verses 7 through 12, we see the Apostle John's heart and his call to love. So follow along with me, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. This is the word of God. There's, there's much that can be said here. Uh, but I want to start in verse 7. That's going to be the main starting point and kind of the hub from which I try to share the heart of this passage. And even kind of a springboard to point to some other verses and, and chapters in First John itself. But I want to really piece, uh, go piece by piece through verse 7. And the words and the phrases that John uses to try to help you understand, help us understand what is he getting at? What, why is he calling Christians to love? How is he calling Christians to to love. And he starts with the very first word there, and it's important. It's the word beloved or beloved. Uh, he, he says it again in verse 11, right? We heard it twice there. He calls the recipients of this letter beloved. Uh, we hear that term not very often in our culture. Maybe at weddings we hear it. We say, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. That's kind of a fun thing to say uh, when you officiate weddings. But it's not a term we use a lot. Uh, but this is the title John uses again and again to refer to these Christians who are receiving his letter, to these brothers and sisters that he loves dearly. He calls them beloved. And I don't think John is trying to, in giving them that title, reminding them, of, addressing them as such, I don't think he's just trying to remind them of his love for them. 
I, he does love them. He makes that very clear. They are beloved of John. Uh, he loves these people. But when he says beloved, I think foremost in John's mind is that they are beloved by God. That they are loved by their creator. That's what he's trying to remind them right as he turns this corner to talk about loving each other. He reminds them first that they're loved by God. That they are beloved by God. And it's to those people that John writes this command. Beloved. Let us love one another. And that's important. We'll come back to that in a moment. But he says, beloved. He's addressing people who are loved uniquely by God. He's addressing those people. And then he gives this command, let us love one another. He doesn't just say, let us love. He says, let us love one another. And this is hugely significant. This, this command that John gives to these people, to the beloved, is not just to love fellow human beings. It is to love fellow Christians, right? He, he says, love one another. This is what I would call an in-house command. Uh, he, he's telling Christians to love other Christians, right? He's not just telling them, go love humanity in general. And we're familiar with this, right? Like in different dimensions of life that you live in, there's certain uh, groups of people that you are part of that you have unique responsibilities to, right? That you have unique ways that you relate to those people that you don't relate to everybody else right? Whether it's a roommate you just moved into or about to, to move into a dorm with, whether it is your own family, uh, you have certain responsibilities and, and ways that you relate to each other that you don't relate to everybody else in society, whether it's a team that you're part of and you have certain responsibilities to practice with them and help with them, uh, whether it's in an office and you have coworkers that you have special responsibilities of how you relate to them, uh, that you don't have obligations the same way with society at large. In the military, there's this and our if you think of being a citizen of our city or our state or our country there's certain things that we have responsibility wise and obligation wise to each other that we don't have to everybody else right we understand that and and John is saying to Christians love other Christians right it's very simple but we could miss that Christians love Christians and this is a recurring theme in John's writings. If you read some of the things that he, he wrote and recorded for us, the theme of loving each other is huge for him. He comes back to it again and again and again. And it's not just because John was this gushy, loving guy. Uh, it was because he was an apostle of Jesus who as a young man was one of the 12 that, that Jesus had in his inner circle of disciples. And John was there the night before Jesus was arrested, the night before Jesus was crucified. And John had heard with his own two ears, and you could tell it had just sunk into his heart. He had heard Jesus himself stress the importance of loving each other. If you, if you look back at what John, recorded, John himself recorded for us in John 13, Verses 34 and 35, he recalled Jesus saying this very thing and wrote it down for us to hear. He recorded Jesus that last night before he was crucified saying this to his disciples, not just to humanity in general, but to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus, in a couple sentences, three times, says, love one another, love one another, love one another. And John had heard that. 
and that had sunk into his heart. And he is not the only apostle that emphasized the importance of love. You read the Apostle Paul, for example, and he mentions love over and over and over again. One of the most beautiful uh, statements about love that we have just in written language is 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul wrote about love and what it looks like, what it doesn't look like in the life of God's people. The Apostle Paul had written in 1 Corinthians 13, he said this, you probably have heard this, he said, now faith, hope, and love abide these three. Those are wonderful things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Uh, Every apostle talks about love again and again and again, and not just a general love for humanity, but a love for fellow Christians. And we're going to get into some specifics of this in a, a moment, but I want us to hear very clearly from this text that if you are a Christian, You have a responsibility to have a particular love for fellow Christians. Not just a general love for humanity, but a specific particular love for fellow Christians. And this is not something that we would just have arise within us on our own. This love for fellow Christians, this committed love to them, is not just something that naturally wells up within us. It's something that God has to do within us, that he has to impart to us, right? And as we keep going through verse 7, you see this. He said, beloved, let us love one another. He says, for love is from God. Love is from God. That's God is the origin of love. He is the one that if there's love present among fellow human beings, he is the one that that love has come from, right? He says love is from God. It is important for us to hear and to know because we're not just commanded to love abstractly. We're commanded to love because God is loving, right? That's what he is like. And and as people create in his image, we're to be loving as well. Uh, if you think about this, and I won't go down this rabbit trail too far, but this is an important note. When John, if you even bounce your eyes down to verse 16 of this same chapter, right in the middle of verse 16, John said, God is love, right? This is important for us to remember that as people who, based on the Bible, believe in the Trinity of God as Father, Son, and Spirit, who have always existed, in eternity past, that God has always been a loving God, even before he created the world, even before he created human beings to love, right? God loved within the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. Any way you can draw those lines, they love each other and always have. Intrinsic in the character of God is love, right? It, there is never, God never turned on a switch to start loving, right? God has always been loving. God is love. It's part, if we can even think of it this way, it's part at the core of who God is. He's a loving God. But God has, you see in this text and in this letter that God is, is not, I wouldn't just say God is love, but God has shown love, right? He has demonstrated love. He's shown us what love actually looks like. We tend to think of love uh, in all sorts of different ways. But in general, I would say when we hear the word love, we tend to think of things like romance or sentiment, right? We think of it as romantic, sentimental, emotional. We think of it as something that just kind of happens to us, like that wells up within us, those types of things. Uh, We see something cute and we love it. We see something noble and we love it. Uh, That's how we tend to think of love. But John tells us that God has shown us what love really is like. 
It, we don't just have to figure it out ourselves and think, what does this term mean? What does it actually look like? John, in this paragraph that we read today, tells us what love looks like. He tells us God has shown us what love looks like. And he does it in verses 9 and 10, right? He says that the love of God was made manifest among us. So God has shown us what love looks like. He said it was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So he says there's this sending of God the Son into the world. That's part of how God the Father showed his love for us. But then in verse 10, he, he adds a layer to it. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son, and it gets more specific here, to be the propitiation for our sins. So, so John is saying that God has shown what love looks like, and it, he's shown us it in the sending and the sacrificing of Christ. That's how he showed what love is like. It's by the sending of his son into our world and the sacrificing of his son upon the cross for our sins. And so when we try to discern what does love look like, we don't look to a movie or to a play or to a novel or even to sweet relationships that we see among fellow human beings. When we want to see what love looks like, we look to the cross. That is where you see what love is most clearly in its purest form what love is like. And love, I, I was trying to think, how, what words could I put together to try to define it, to try to get at the heart of what, how I think John is describing love, how God has shown love. And this is a mouthful, so I have it on the screen, I believe. Um, but this was the closest I could come. And you could probably improve it in different ways. But as we think about how God has shown love and then how it's supposed to come out in our life, I, I would describe love biblically as this, as an, an eternal, internal benevolent disposition toward others that leads to external sacrificial acts for their good. I'll say that again. Love, I think, biblically can be defined, described as an internal benevolent disposition toward others that leads to external sacrificial acts for their good. And we can leave that up there for a minute, Malachi, if people want to jot that down. But you see each of these elements in the, the love that God has demonstrated, right? There's this internal and external nature of love there's this internal disposition for God so loved the world right there's this internal love of God for the world that he gave his only begotten son right there's this internal love that motivates external action right there's this internal disposition towards people that leads to actual action but it's this internal benevolent just means like you're for the good of somebody else like an internal benevolent disposition. Like you want good for someone else, right? You have a desire for good things to come to them, for good things to, to become true in this person's life. That's what it means to have this benevolent disposition. But I would note that this disposition is a chosen disposition. It's not just something that naturally you're like, oh yeah, I, of course I want the good of these people. It's a disposition that you choose, that you orient yourself a certain way to say, I want the good of this person. I want the good of these people. This disposition, this benevolent disposition towards people and love is a chosen one, not a forced one. It's a willful one, not just a natural one, right? Uh, it's not that we look at people and think they deserve my love. But we look at people and say, I'm granting them my love. I want good for them in spite of who they are, in spite of how they treat me, in spite of what they lack. 
one of my friends on Facebook this week, uh, I, I appreciate what he said. I don't think this was original to him, but he was trying to get at this willful nature of love, and he was contrasting liking someone and loving someone, and he said this. He said, you like because you love although. And I thought that was really well said, that like, love is not just liking someone because you see something worthy in them. Loving someone is even as you see things, sin in them, even as you see weakness, even as they mistreat you, you choose to love them although. Right? That's what this willful, uh, benevolent disposition towards the good of people is. But it, that love, that orientation for the good of someone or a group of people, it leads, if it's true love, it leads to actions. It leads to sacrificial actions on their behalf. Right? It, it is not just sentiment. It's not just in my head that I love these people, but it translates into how I live, what I do toward them, what I do for them, Right? If you look back at 1 John chapter 3, just a paragraph before this, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 18, John had said to these same people, he had said, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John was saying that the way love is expressed isn't just in sentiment. It's not just in a disposition internally, but it comes out externally in how I act toward them, how I treat them, what I do for them. And this is clearest in the cross, right? God's love for us didn't just, it wasn't just affection, it wasn't just a disposition, but it led to the sending of Christ into our world to take on a human form. And to, more than that, to the crushing of that son upon the cross. Like there is no clearer act, no clearer demonstration of love in action than that. When he says that Christ was the propitiation for our sins, that may sound like a mouthful. I think it's five syllables in one word, propitiation, if I'm counting right. It's a big word we don't use a lot. What that means is that when Christ became the propitiation for our sins upon the cross, what that means is that he absorbed, he took the wrath of God the Father that should have been aimed at us, that rightfully should have come on our head, that we should suffer for eternity, that we should already be enduring right now for our sins, that Christ himself, the innocent one, took our sins upon himself and then rightfully took the wrath of God the Father on himself, suffering the penalty, suffering the death, suffering the judgment of God on our behalf. That is love in action. There, there was a good for us that God the Father wanted to bring about, and he sent Christ to do it. Love, the demonstration of love is not just in giving of flowers and writing of poems and giving of compliments. It is in sacrificial acts for the good of other people. Not just doing pleasant things for people who please us, but doing hard, the cross, bloody, sacrificial things for people who are against us. That is what love is. It's a, a disposition for the good of other people that leads to actions for their good. God the Father sent Jesus into our world and crushed him upon the cross so that we might have life, right? So that, end of verse 9, that we might live through him. He did it for our gain. His love led him to this external act of sending Christ. So God is love and God's demonstrated love to us 
And we would not naturally love each other. We, we don't naturally have that aptitude to, to have a benevolent disposition to people and then let that lead us to sacrificial acts for them. That doesn't naturally happen in us. It's something God has to impart to us. It's something that he has to work into our hearts. And that's why I appreciate it. If you go back to verse 7 where we've started, how he continues this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And then hear this. He says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We are not naturally loving people, but God can make us into loving people. God can make us into people who have the good of others foremost in our hearts and are willing to lay down our lives to gain that for them who are willing to sacrifice of ourself in the, the model and the stream that Christ began, we are willing to do that for the sake of others. And if we do, it's because we have been born of God. If, if we are loving towards his people, it's because God has united us with his resurrected son, Jesus. He has given us life. He has changed who we are. He's, he's given us new inclinations, new orientation to actually care for people we used to not care about. To actually lay down my life for people I used to ignore or not give a care about. God can change us into that. And if he does, it's because we have been born of him. We become like him, right? As our heavenly father. I joke about this periodically from up here, but my kids, especially my sons, look just like me. Like, I don't, I, many of you, like several times, jokingly will say stuff like, and I get what you're saying. I think it's funny to you, like, no denying that they're yours. Things like that. Like, they have features that look like me like they I'm their father they look like me right and if God is love if God's internal disposition even to his enemies has led to sacrificial acts on their behalf then so will his children do that his children will have an orientation for the good of other people that leads them to lay down their life we will look like our Father. John says that in different words over and over and over again. That if you've been born of God, you will live like God lives. You will become like Him. And John is, is beating that drum over and over again in this letter. I'd encourage you to read this letter often. John is telling people throughout this letter, if you have been born again, your life will show it. But if you have been born of God, your life will be different. And it'll be in different ways. There's different tests, but you will be different. If you look at verse 8 from today's text, he says it kind of in a different way. But he says, hear this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is not me saying that. That is the Apostle John under this inspiration of Spirit saying that. If someone does not love, if someone in this room does not love the people of God. John is saying that is a wake-up call to you. That should be a wake-up call to you. Is, is God my Father? Like, has He changed me? Has He imparted this love to me? And do I show it to others? I came across a quote from, I couldn't even find who to attribute it to. So many people say it now. But they said this. They said, those who know the love of God show the love of God. I thought that was very well said. If you have received the love of God, if you know his love through Christ, you will show the love of God to other people, particularly to other Christians, right? 
So I want us to think practically speaking what this looks like. What, what does it look like if we as individuals, we as a church, are going to be marked by love? If we're going to actually follow this command, let us love one another, what will that look like? What should that look like today, tomorrow, next year, next decade, all the way till Jesus returns? What should that love look like? And my main point of application is not rocket science this morning. It is three words for you, for me. It's love the beloved. Love the beloved. Like that is what you are called to do from this text is love those who are beloved by God. Love the people. If you're part of this church, love the people of this church. And love them the way that God has loved us. Love them the way that God has loved you. And I am not trying to say, as I point via this text to the love that we should have for each other, I am not, hear me clearly, this would be a whole different sermon, but I am not trying to imply we should not love people who are unbelievers. We should. Like, we should have a love for them that compels us to go with the gospel to them, that, that compels us to go to them with the good news of Jesus. But this text calls us especially to love each other. To have a love for one another in the life of God's people. And we need to do what we can to start developing or keep developing that internal benevolent disposition towards each other, right? Towards the people in this room, towards the people who are part of this church family. We need to keep developing that internal benevolent disposition towards people in our church. We tend to think so much, and I am like this, we tend to think so individualistically about our faith where we just think of me and God. Christ died to save me. I spend my quiet time with him. I, when I come into this room even, I worship God. I sing to him. I pray to him. I do this. I do that. We think so individualistically in our culture that we lose the communal aspect of God's love. That we lose the reality. We let it fall in our minds that Christ died for us. That's when we, why when we take communion we say, Christ's body broken for us. Not just for me. Christ's blood shed for us. Like Jesus did not just die for you. Like he died for all of his beloved. Including people in this room. People who have been saved by him. He died for them as well. And we need to be. And I I want to, to encourage us and challenge us. To be. Choose to be committed to the believers of this church. You are called by this text to love these people. You are commanded by God to love these people if you're part of this church. And we have to choose to commit ourselves to loving these people. And it may not, it probably will not come naturally to you to do that. Uh, That's not in our natural inclination to commit ourselves in love to a, a group of believers because we think so individualistically. We may feel, as we think about our lives, we're often more drawn to spend time with people who share the same hobbies, who share the same career, who live in our neighborhood, who are part of our family, who we have backstory with. We are drawn to all sorts of people, and we love those people. We lay down our time to spend with those people, but the people of God sometimes fall into the background. We, we don't feel as strong of an affinity for fellow Christians as we do with other people. But God does not just call us to a natural love for people who are just like us, right? He calls us to a supernatural love for even people who are very different from us. People we have no other connection with, no other context with. He calls us to love the people of God, to love the people of the church that we are part of as an expression of that. This is a command. 
This is not a suggestion to love each other. It is a command of God to us as Christians, love one another. And if you lack motivation, if you lack a desire to love the people of this church, to commit yourself to the people of this church, I want to challenge you to think, how does Christ see these people? Because I assure you, at least they're saying, I love Jesus. But most of you, I think, in the room would say, I at least love Christ himself. How does Christ see the people that you're not naturally drawn to in the life of this church? The people that you may not feel an affinity to. They are the beloved as much as you. Like they are beloved by Christ. They were bought by his death, by his life. They were bought just the same as you. They are loved by him. Does that not compel you to love these people? To give your life to them, to to bond with them. If nothing else motivates you, that should be the supreme motivator. Is that Jesus loves these people and I love him. So I'm committing myself to love these people. I'm committing myself to be with them. And this is, these people are dear to Jesus. They should be dear to you. They should be people that you value and that you commit yourself to love. And that disposition, that internal disposition for the good of the church should come out in action. It should be demonstrated in the way that you live your life. It should be demonstrated in the way that you spend your time, right? We think, uh, we use the, the categories in the last year or two as we think about our life together as a church. We use the three kind of hangers of worship, community, and service. That we worship together, we're in community together, and we serve each other. The love that we have towards each other should show up in all of those domains. It should show up in how we worship, it should show up in how we have community together, and it should show up in how we serve. A couple examples of how that would be. How love should, if we're to love one another, how it should flesh itself out even in worship. Very simply, I would encourage us to prioritize the weekly gathering of God's people. Prioritize being here this time, Sunday morning, to worship with the people of God. I think at a minimum, that's something we should be doing, right? If if we say, I love these people, I'm for their good, it's I need to actually be around them. Like, I actually need to spend time with them. And I am not an old man. I don't know if I'm in middle age category yet, but as I get older, I do have a growing concern for my fellow Christians and maybe something that would be tempting for me if I wasn't on staff at a church. But there is a growing concern that I have about the spottiness and the inconsistency of our, our fellowship together on Sunday mornings for worship. Uh, it used to be, whether it was just culturally motivated or whatnot, that, that people, if they were part of a church, would be there religiously, pun intended, pretty much every Sunday. They would come and be part. They would spend time with God's people. Nowadays, and data shows this, is becoming less and less. Even people who say, yeah, I'm committed to that church, I love that church, maybe come half the time. Maybe. And some of us are that way. Like we, we come when it, we're able to. We come when there's not other things that are taking my time, when there's not other things that are, are steering me away from the people of God. But if we love the people of this church, if we're committed for the, to the good of other people in this church, we need to be around each other, right? It, it, love is not just a sentiment. Like, oh yeah, I love CCC. Oh, when was the last time you were there? Uh, I don't even remember. Maybe last month or five weeks ago. Or whatever. That is not loving a church. And I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying if you love the people of God here, you should be with us. 
Like, and if you're not part of this church, if you're part of another church, be with them. Like, spend time with them, but faithfully worship together. And if you don't, like, if you, I want to challenge you to think about it. If you are spending your Sunday mornings doing something else, what you are demonstrating by that choice is that you love something else more than you love the beloved. Whatever that is that you fill in the blank with, you are loving that thing. And I know there's exceptions where we're sick, where we're ill. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we choose to sleep in because we were out late the night before. When we choose to stay home and just think, I can watch the video tomorrow just for no reason other than I don't feel like getting up. When we, when we go to a sporting event, when we go camping again and again and again and again, like those types of things, those are, not, those are things that I am showing that I love that thing more than I love these people. I'm more committed to that. There are people who would never miss a meeting at work. You would not catch them dead missing a meeting at work. You would not catch them dead missing a practice or a game, but you would not find them in the church. Like, that, they miss it all the time. And that's not demonstrating a love for the people of God. And if we come together for worship, when we come together for worship into this room, I would encourage you, if you are doing it in a loving way, you're going to come not just to receive for yourself, but to give to others. Right? It's a sacrificial service of other people. So as you come on Sunday mornings, look for opportunity before the service, after the service, maybe even in the midst of it. If you see someone crying or having a difficult time, look for people that you can serve. Look for people that you can give your attention to, to care for them, rather than just thinking, what do I get out of this? How does this make me feel? What is this? How does this build me up? Look for ways to lay down your life, even the hour, whatever, that we're together for the service of other people. So love should drive how we worship. It should drive how we have community together, that second hanger, that we actually try to even have community together, right? When we gather together, the most common groups we have for community are life groups in our church. Uh, and when we come together in our life groups, just like I just said for our formal worship times together, when we come together in those smaller subsets for community, we should try our best to come to serve, not to be served. To say, my love for these people is demonstrating in me faithfully coming, me giving my ear, me giving my attention, me giving my counsel, however I can get it, my prayers to these people. I am going to give of myself to these people. And I, I, everything in us screams, come to be served. Come to be cared for. And that, those are good desires, but they are bad motivators. Because if we do that and we don't receive that in the quantity or the way that we want, we start getting frustrated, we start getting uh, discouraged, uh, we start getting disappointed with community. But if we come with the orientation of, I want to, in this hour, hour and a half, however long you gather together, I want to lay my life down for these people, you can do that. That is up to you to do. That other people may not do it, but that you can do that. You can orient yourself and say, in love, I'm going to listen to these people. I'm going to be present with these people. I'm going to show my care for them. I appreciate whenever Pastor Larry uh, preaches messages at weddings, he references the really common uh, metaphor that people use nowadays of a love tank. Uh, I am not condemning whole cloth, the love tank idea, but the idea is that, hey, we have a love tank that needs to get filled up by other people, that they need to, like, fill me up with love so that I can love everybody else, like, my tank needs to be full so I can love other people, uh, and if they're not loving me, if I'm not being loved by people rightly, then I just have nothing to give. I have no way to love people, and he always kindly, respectfully tries to challenge a married couple as they're coming together to just spare themselves of that analogy 
and to not say, I am going to love you because you have loved me, but to say, I am loving you because I'm committed to loving you. I am loving you because I have pledged that to you, not because you have filled me up. We don't love as Christians in order to be loved by other people. We love because we have been loved already, right? Like that, that is said over and over again in this letter. We love because he first loved us, right? Not we love to get loved by other people. We love because he first loved us. And that is always true that you, your love tank is full. It is. Maybe not from fellow human beings, but from God. Your love tank is as full and overflowing as it could ever be. And you serve out of that. Like you are loved. And you have capacity by the Spirit to love and care for other people. In our community, just practically speaking, we need to be, as we're in groups together, we need to be in love, being willing to share hard things with people, right? Loving each other doesn't just mean we have these like gushy kumbaya bonfire, we sing and everybody's pleasant, and we never step on each other's toes. In Ephesians 4, Paul said to that church, he said that they should be speaking the truth in love. There's sometimes in love we need to call each other out kindly. We need to challenge each other. We need to confront each other. We need to address mistreatment. And we are called to speak the truth in love. Everything we do in service of our fellow believers in those contexts of community, even the hard things, should be done in love, should be done for their good, not just for me to vent, not just for me to get this off my chest, but done for the good of those people. And we should hear the truth in love as well. That when we are, are challenged by people, when we're confronted by people, we need to hear it in a loving way also. To say, you know what, brother or sister, you're right. I need to consider that. I need to weigh that. That has happened even in my life recently about something. It's, I need to hear the truth in love. So in community, we should be loving. The last domain, if worship, community, and service, our, our service, our using of our gifts should be affected by love. It should be driven by love, Right? As we think about functioning in the life of a congregation, different ways we might have opportunity to serve fellow believers in different teams, different programs, different roles, serving informally, even in our friendships, we need to have a willingness, following the example of Christ, we need to have a willingness to, to not just do what is, um, what is pleasant, not just do what's naturally appealing to me, not just do what comes easy to me, not just serve the people that, oh yeah, I love that segment of people at the church. I'm going to serve them. And then just steer away from everything we have an aversion to, everything that kind of repels us and we don't want to do. We should have a willingness to do things that aren't our first choice, but that are needed. Right? To, to have a willingness to, and many of you do this, and I so much appreciate that about our church. You have a willingness to do things that aren't necessarily your cup of tea, but they're things that need to be done for the good of other people in the life of our church. That is a beautiful, God-honoring thing to say. I will choose to love this church by doing fill in the blank. And it, I would not let anything drive me toward that thing other than my love for the church. I would never, some of you would never change diapers. Uh, you hate it, you have an aversion to it, like all humans beings I think uh, but you are willing to to serve in nurseries because you know that's a way you can make an installment of love into the life of those young kids it's a way that you can serve their mother their father their grandparents who have brought them we need to have a willingness to do things that are hard a willingness to do things that aren't our first choice because our ultimate aim in serving fellow Christians isn't just to have a pleasant experience for me 
It's not just for me to feel, feel fulfilled, me to feel like, oh, yeah, that felt really good to do that thing. That's wonderful if that happens, but that's not why you do it. You do it for the good of these brothers and sisters. You do it for their gain. We need to have a willingness to, to serve, to give of our time, to even sacrificially give of our time, to not just say, well, I will serve the church if it fits in my already crowded schedule, right? Love says, I will lay down other things. I will lay down other priorities that are not commanded in Scripture, that are not necessarily building up the life of the church if it means that I can have opportunity to serve these brothers and sisters, if I have opportunity to build them up in their faith, to serve them, to care for them. We need to have a willingness to do that. And as we do this, the love that we demonstrate to each other in worship and in community and service, it will have an impact on the watching world. It will demonstrate something to unbelievers that they see in no other place, that they see in no other dimension of reality. And verse 12 of today's text, the last thing I'll point out from the text, implies that, right? John says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. God the Father is invisible, right? But then he says this, he says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I think what he's implying there is that the love of God towards fellow human beings might be invisible as far as like looking to heaven to see a visible manifestation of God. But the love of God is visible in the love of the church. Uh, That's why Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another, right? We become the visible expression of God's love that a world can look at. They can see as they watch our lives together that we're not using each other. We're not manipulating each other. We're not just getting together for trite, surface-level enjoyment of each other. They'll see that we're committed, that we're forgiving, that we're gracious towards each other. They'll see that old fellowship with the young and men fellowship with women and, and, and that across economic divides and people in different career paths and from different backgrounds, maybe even people who speak different languages or part of different ethnicities, that we all come together. And it's not just because we're impressed with each other, but because we're commonly impressed with Jesus. That is, is radical to the world. And that will not save people like as they, as they watch us love each other, as they hear about how we love each other, that's not enough to save them. They need to hear the truth, right? Love alone won't uh, bring them salvation. They need to hear the truth of the gospel. But our love for each other is a powerful apologetic. It is a powerful witness to the world that there is something different about these people. These people are like totally new types of human beings almost. Uh, it's a compelling evidence that God is at work within us. In closing, before we sing the last song, I wanted to share this. There's a a man named Jerome who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries uh, who, uh, in one of his commentaries on the book of Galatians, he recorded uh, a story he had heard about the Apostle John, the guy who wrote today's text. And I wanted to put it up on the screen and read it to you because I think it is absolutely beautiful and I can't think of a better way to end. He, He wrote this, talking about the Apostle John who wrote this. He recorded, the blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. And during individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but, little children love one another. 
the disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, Teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John, Because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. I love that. The, this man who wrote this for us kept saying that, apparently, uh, until he was old, until he maybe didn't even know what else to say to them. That was the drum that he kept beating until his last breath. His little children love each other. And he, it was his heart because it was Christ's heart. And it's my heart because it's Christ's heart. And I want it to be your heart because it's Christ's heart. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because these people are beloved by him. The people of this church are loved by Christ. And my hope, my prayer, is that if God gives me long enough life, and if Jesus stays in heaven long enough, that maybe someday when I'm an old man, that some of you younger kids will be strong enough at that point to carry me into the fellowship, and you will hear me saying, just like I've said today, love one another. I hope that I can say that till I can say nothing else. Love one another. Let's do that together. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing one last song about God's love to us to help motivate us to love each other. But let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. We do not deserve it. Thank you for having that benevolent disposition toward us that led you to the actions of sending your son and even sacrificing him in our place. God, may we be moved by your love for us. May we be motivated by your love for us. May we be moved to action, to love each other, to make a conscious choice to commit ourselves to your people, to worship with them, to commune with them, and to serve with them. Thank you for the gift of the church, and thank you for the gift of your love that has brought it about. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.